Welcome to the B'nai B'rith International Podcast. I'm CEO Dan Mariashen. Thanks for tuning in today. A little bit of housekeeping before we get started. Be sure to visit our website, b'nai like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter. The easiest way to get the latest episode is to subscribe on iTunes or Google Play on your smartphone. I'm joined today by Cheryl Kempler, our archivist and staff writer here at our Benebrith offices for this special podcast in honor of our 175th anniversary. In her role at Benebrith, Cheryl is our keeper of institutional knowledge with a seemingly limitless repository of information not only about Benebrith's history, but also about the arts, culture, and music. In this interview, Cheryl and I will be discussing an important topic in B'nai history, our beginnings as an organization. We'll be talking about our organization's founders and their goals, and how B'nai grew and developed, especially during its first 30 years. We'll also be touching on B'nai role in the context of American Jewish history. Cheryl, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Dan. Well, let's start at the beginning, but before we talk about B'nai we were founded in New York. What was the Jewish community like in 1843 or before 1843? Well, at, 18, at about in 1800, there were about 300 Jews in the city of New York. Some were Sephardim, others were Ashkenazi, and they all were sharing synagogues. Uh, this was, uh, even, even with such a small population, there were immediately some problems in terms of um, uh, communal ritual, synagogue ordinances and administration. And even by 1800, we in New York experienced a schism among the Jewish population. And this was a perfect stage being set for the influx of more Jews, particularly from Germany, into the United States and into New York in particular. Where do they live? Well, in in the in the eighteen hundred, most of them lived downtown, way downtown, because there was no other New York. It was all down near where the Statue of Liberty is today. But as more and more people came, and an interesting fact is, by eighteen forty, two out of every three New Yorkers were foreign born. They came and they started to settle uptown. And the Germans, not only the German Jews, but the Germans as a community, settled in a place uh, aptly called Kleine Deutschland, and that was near where it's approximately where Alphabet City is today, up to about 14th Street on the west side, and on the east side all the way down to the water. And uh, by 1840, there were about, you know, I don't really trust the population figures, but between 10 and 15,000 Jews in Kleine Deutschland. Now, the men who founded B'nai B'rith, where did they come from? They were from the German Jewish community, the immigrants. Um, they lived, I assume, in that, in that area. Uh, who were they and what did they do? Well, it's interesting about these men. Uh, you find out, the more you find out, the more you want to know. Um, these were men who had come before the failed revolution of 1848 in Germany, when a lot of German men had to get out because they were, they were trying to foment democracy in Germany and the revolution failed. But these men came before. 
They were well-read. Despite some of them had professions that were not uh, intellectual. For example, Henry Jones, who was the secretary of Anshe Hesed Synagogue, was a mechanic by trade. Others of the twelve founders were merchants. A typical uh, profession in New York of Jews, uh, clothing merchants. They they had one had a jewelry store. One was a physician. The other, I think, had a was a cigar maker. They were the typical people who had to pursue professions that were non-intellectual in New York. And yet they were well-read. They were products of the Enlightenment. They were people who were very, had a very rational attitude about Judaism. And they were all members of the Anshe Hesed Synagogue. They were, many of them were officers too. You have to remember that this was a time there were very few uh, clerics in New York. So the synagogues were all comprised of lay leaders who had to learn how to preach, uh, sing, lead the service, all manner of things. And, and, Jones was certainly one of these people who was a preacher, a teacher, and also had to pursue a day job. So they're all members of the same synagogue, Anshe Chesed. Um, why did they create B'nai B'rith? Well, because they saw all around them, for every four Jewish people in New York, there were five synagogues. They they split at will. The liturgy didn't please them. They, the, the service was too long. The one group wanted a choir and the other one didn't because this was America. People left their hothouse environment of Europe and they came here and they discovered, wow, I can uh, go to synagogue twice a month rather than every day. I don't have to go to synagogue at all. I can wear talus. I can wear tefillin. I can do anything I want and it's whatever I want because this is America, this is my conscience. And this idea was very much conflated with American ideals, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So this had its good side and its bad side. Every time someone had a fight in the synagogue, they split off, they made a new synagogue. Someone left the door open, someone split off and made a new synagogue. So they, all around them, they saw the Jewish population of New York being fragmented, and it didn't look good to the outside world as well. They, people were fighting. In fact, sometimes the, fought, the fight was taken into the street. So they wanted to rectify this situation. They wanted to present a good front to the outside world. So... The story is that these individuals came together to assist uh, an indigent widow. What what more can you tell us about that catalyst yes. for the founding of the organization? Well, you know, we have a we're very blessed, Benabrith, and having a really great scholar. Uh, Cornelia Wellhelm, look back onto original documents, and she found out a lot of information that we didn't know. And she found out that the that this was certainly a concern for the starters of B'nai B'rith, but what they really wanted to do was start a club, very prevalent in Germany and the United States. You know, the Germans had singing societies, they had shooting societies, they were mechanic societies all sorts of uh, clubs, they wanted to start a club in which they could say, you who want to worship every day, you come here. You who don't want to go to synagogue at all, you come here. You who want something in the middle or you want to have the choir, you come here because despite all of our differences, 
we are all Jews, and we are going to make a union that shows the outside world that this is who we are, that despite our uh, obeying our own conscience, we're going to live the morality of the essence of Judaism, that is, becoming brothers with ourselves and with you who are not Jews. We all worship the same Judeo-Christian way. America is based on the Ten Commandments, our laws. Uh, and we're going to manifest this to you. We're going to be the representatives of all the Jewish communities, and we're going to pool together to change society for the better. It's a long time ago. Do we know which of these founders came up with the idea? Was it a consensus among friends? Uh, what, what do we know about that? Well, these were the men who were the, be, these were the leaders of the next phase of Judaism here in the United States, and that is the radical reform movement, the real organized synagogues that transformed the liturgy, that sh- made it shorter, that said it in German or English, and th- these were the men who went on to establish Emmanuel Synagogue, and they had a real rabbi. Now, Temple Emmanuel. Temple Emmanuel, that's correct. And I'm sorry, and they had a rabbi who was like a real rabbi. He went to university in Germany. He studied in Cheder, and he transformed the service. And so these were the men whose consensus was, we are going to build a platform of diverse kinds of Jews, but we're going to do it through the reform philosophy because we are going to be the tolerant ones. And so these were the guys that went on to do something brand new in New York. And that the the liturgy of the Anche Chesed synagogue was reform uh, no actually uh, this was before there were any organized reform synagogues here in the, in the United States um, this was an orthodox liturgy that had some kind of variance um, it was since there were both Sephardim and Ashkenazi in the congregation they practiced a liturgy. We don't quite know what it was like, but we know this must have been very long. And there were, and people in B'nai B'rith, the original founders, some of them had strong objections to its length, uh, to the fact that women were sitting upstairs. They all had, uh, you know, different kinds of problems with what was going on, which is why they started Temple Emmanuel. If we can put ourselves back to that time. Uh, Imagine a meeting of these gentlemen sitting around a, a table. Uh, what were they discussing? What kinds of projects? Do we know anything at all about the kinds of work other than the, the story about helping the, the indigent? Uh, what else were they involved in? Well, the first thing they wanted to do was make a constitution. And this constitution had been cha- has changed over the years with the new developments within the context of Judaism. Um, they did want to create a society that would help the uh, widows and children of their member. But, in fact, each lodge did not have to ascribe to it. They could accept it or reject it as will at will. They did have a tenant, though. If there were sick people, 
you had to take care of them. Each member had to do that. They were interested in creating a society like non-Jewish societies that had uh, variants of degrees, like the Masons, where you could, with your morality, with the project you completed, you attained another degree. And this had ritual, costumes, very interesting. And this is what they were trying to develop, as well as trying to find ways to unify the lodges. And by the 1850s, lodges were spreading throughout the United States, and they had to find out a way to unify all the different kinds of Jews that were in different cities and towns, uh, uh, make them also part of this national organization, a unified front. I look back at the history, I see Cincinnati was 1849, and then in Memphis, uh, probably in the early 1850s. But how would word spread from New York, where this was founded, to the other parts of the country where this rapid growth in B'nabrit started to occur? Well, here's the story. Think about Cincinnati in the 1840s. That was the frontier. That was the Wild West. But many Jews had come through to Cincinnati for one reason or another, for commerce. But we had a great uh, catalyst there. That was Rabbi Wise. And he was a member of the B'nai B'rith. And he, of course, brought the word to men in Cincinnati, also charismatic leaders in Memphis, in New Orleans, they also brought the word. There was, uh, of course, letter writing, epistolatory. There was a journal, uh, not our journal, but it was called, I think, the Jewish Times. And that was started by an editor who was a Ben Brit. And so he had a column every month, what was going on in the New York lodges. And so this were w- these were ways of disseminating information. But of course, uh, each city had its own flavor, its own people uh, who had come together because, well, there were so few Jews there. You felt this was a way to kind of end the isolation. So that's why each district, or what became districts, developed in their own way. So Rabbi Isaac Mayer Wise would have heard about B'nai B'rith through correspondence, through uh, a rabbi, perhaps, through, in, in New York. Uh, somebody right. sent him a letter. That's how word spread? Well, I think Isaac Wise was in New York for a time. But certainly, that's how, certainly, epistolatory communication, I think that was one of your, that and, and journals were the few ways to to find out uh, what was going on. Uh, alas, no internet then. So let's take a look just at the first 30 years. It started to grow. So by 1863... What did B'nai look like in America? Well, uh, let me say this. Uh, you know, every year, all the members, all the lodges, they had conventions, even then. So they were meeting in different cities where there was a high Jewish population. What disrupted things for a while, as you can probably imagine, was the Civil War. There was a dearth of traveling. Uh, conventions set for southern cities had to be canceled all these things. And meanwhile, uh, the Jews in the West, they wanted uh, certain things to occur, and the Jews in the East wanted other things to occur. And of course, since the leaders of District 1, the New York Lodges, were radical reform, they wanted to change the liturgy and the ritual yet again. They wanted to um, simplify the ritual they wanted to eliminate, uh, they wanted it to be less rigorous, less religious, and the Jews in the West, led by Rabbi Wise, 
didn't want that to happen. They wanted to keep the costumes and the 24 degrees and all of the things that went with it. So in 1863, that was a pivotal year when things started to change, and that's why they created the districts, District 2, 3, 4, because each district wanted something else. And then there was a schism, did we want to act in unison, or did we want to let each district do their own thing? So it, 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 for through years of unity and uh, through years of the non-Jewish community looking to B'nai B'rith for um, the respectability and, um, how shall I say, the, the decorum that we associated with the Jewish community here in the United States, inside was brewing a tempest because of developments in what was thought of as being modern. The Jews in New York were wanted modern Judaism. The Jews in the West wanted to keep certain things. So a, a, as always, <laughs> it sort of characterizes our organization, there's always discussion and uh, compromise. Well, it probably reflected also. Um, American democracy was just, just growing by leaps and bounds, and everything was democratic. And uh, exactly. they, as uh, other Americans, were, were exercising that right and enjoying that right, uh, which also meant uh, having an organization that... Uh, uh, inside was uh, debating about uh, its future. We we started with the population in New York City in the 1840s at uh, or in revolutionary times being very small. By the 1860s, what are we looking about looking at as the organization grows around the United States? Well, in New York alone, in 1860, in 1850, there were only 16,000 Jews in New York. By 1860, I'm sorry, 1850, um, in 1860, there were 40,000 Jews in New York because I would suspect that in Europe the emancipation worked somewhat, but Jewish people were completely uh, anxious, uh, wanted so much to get away from this hothouse environment where they were oppressed, where they had to uh, pay special taxes, where they had to have permission to get married. They heard about America. They heard that what you could do was anything you wanted. So they let, started to leave in droves. And for all the population, there was different people from different regions with different tastes, different ideas. So more and more diversity. And of course, as they came to the States, they changed again. They went out to the West and they were exposed to different things, things that Jews in New York weren't exposed to. And of course, they had different adversities. Remember in the South, there were the big yellow fever epidemics at that time. Um, German Jews particularly susceptible to that because they had no resistance. They came down there and they were immediately infected. So they did, all of the regions had different problems. And in the 1860s, we're still about 20 or 25 years away from the real influx of Jewish immigrants into the United States. But we'll take that up in, uh, in another podcast. Cheryl, thank you so much for uh, being with us today, providing this background information, for, for keeping tabs on our history, uh, which uh, now is in its 175th year. Thank you, Dan. And thank you, everyone, for listening to our podcast today. Please visit our website, benebrith.org, like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter, subscribe on your smartphone through the podcast app for iPhone or through Google Play for Android. And lastly, tell a friend about us. For my guest, Cheryl Kempler, 
I'm Dan Mariashen. We'll talk to you next time on the B'nai B'rith International Podcast.